From Spa Damer and Tenney, it's White Coat Wellness, a show for doctors who are ready to improve their financial wellness. We know you work hard to help your patients, but you can't be at your best if you don't have your own finances in order. In White Coat Wellness, we highlight real-life stories from physicians and dentists to educate, encourage, and inspire you to personal, professional, and financial wellness. Now, from Spa Damer and Tenney, please welcome your host, Shane Tenney. There are approximately 870,000 active physicians in the United States today, and about 90% of those are white or Asian, but the trend may be shifting. Last year, of the 22,000 medical school applicants that were accepted, nearly 50% were from ethnic minority groups, and so our topic today is diversity in medicine. We're joined by Dr. Narjust Duma. Dr. Duma is a thoracic oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. Wisconsin's Carborn Cancer Center and a Latina physician who completed medical school in the Dominican Republic. Dr. Duma was the 2018 Resident of the Year by the National Hispanic Medical Association and has started a Twitter community called Hashtag Latinas in Medicine, which has grown to over 1,300 followers in just the last five or six months. I'm really excited to have this conversation today because I think I'm going to learn a lot along with you. And uh, I will say, uh, as we dive in here, that in our prep for the podcast, Dr. Duma was kind enough to say that I should refer to her by her nickname, NJ. So that's what we'll do. NJ, thanks so much. Welcome to the uh, White Coat Wellness Podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Thank uh, for having us. I'm very excited to discuss this initiative with you. Yeah, thanks. Um, why don't you just start by telling me and our listeners a little bit of just about your background and, and your journey into medicine. I know you come from a, a I guess, a, a heritage of, of physicians. So, yes, I'm a four-generation doctor. My great-grandpa was a doctor that I used to deliver babies and pull tea at the same time, if you're possible. Then uh, my grandparents are doctors, and both of my parents are surgeons. For that reason, I'm the black sheet of the family because I didn't, I didn't do surgery. It was expected of me to become a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon which didn't align with my interests. Originally from Venezuela, my father is from the Dominican Republic, and my mom is Colombian. But I grew up in Venezuela, and then I moved to the United States uh, to do my clinical rotations. I met my husband. My plan wasn't to stay here. My plan was to go back home and share what I have learned in the United States. But my husband doesn't speak much Spanish. He's, lear he's learning, I think. <laughs> So we decided to stay in the United States, and um, I completed medical school, did uh, some research in the middle, and then I moved to Rutgers when I was the internal medicine resident, and then Mayo Clinic where I did my fellowship. Mm -hmm. And and with going to medical school early, starting in in the Dominican Republic, and then matching for residency in Rutgers, what was that that transition like? So I was very fortunate compared to all the international medical grads. I was able to do a very large number of my rotations in the United States. So I did rotations in Seattle at several hospitals, including the county hospital, the VA. So while this had transition about cultural differences, I was more familiar with the rotations in the United States than back home. Something that I did found different was back home the trainee tends to be more quiet and just follow orders. Here in the United States, I found that we do have a voice when we are sharing our thought process with the senior resident or with the attendant. So that was something different that it took me a few months because 
it may happen to a lot of medical students as well because you are the medical student and then you become the doctor in a matter of four weeks. So that's one of the things I found different. Something I'm very thankful is I, I train at Rutgers University in New Jersey. So there was a lot of Latin patients. So there was a lot of they had bias in my favor because they wanted to have the Spanish speaking doctor. So that made the transition easier because a lot of the hospital attendants wanted NJ because was only two Latinas in the whole class of 50. So I wanted to, they wanted me to be in their team because I speak Spanish. So it was good. It was also overwork, but it was good. Mm-hmm. And, and, it sounds like that was, I guess you said, unusually favorable or, or helpful because you did a lot of rotations in Seattle and then you had a large population that needed your specific skill set, um, both in medicine and, and with language. Did you, were there setbacks or frustrations or things that you faced that as you made the transition or even into fellowship? I think one of the challenges is that I didn't fit the box. I wasn't the standard medical student. I wasn't the standard resident. I'm very research-oriented, and I try to apply that to my practice as well. So besides being a Latina and being proud to be a Latina, I was also very indeed into the research. So one of the frustrations was, I would say, no, the, the system trying to force me to be somebody I was not, to get comments like, oh, you're too Latina, or get comments in my outfit was common because... I shared this on Twitter a few months ago as I used to wear colorful outfits. I grew up in Venezuela. I went to school in the Caribbean. If you have white clothes and colorful clothes, it helps with the heat. So comments like, oh, that's a very yellow dress, or wow, that's so yellow, or oh, so colorful. And I really, despite the phrase, you're too Latina, because what that means being too Latina who that established that standard. So that was one of the frustrations is that I didn't fix the box of being this type of resident or this type of medical student. And that affected some of my self-esteem in, in my wardrobe because I started wearing more black. And only until the last few years, I felt feel more comfortable. And that's one of the reasons we created the community because I didn't have other Latina to say, hey, is this happening to you? And then I, I felt that was on me. It was, I was, it was the one that was being too Latina. And to realize that wearing yellow is fine, it took a while. So I think that's one of the frustrations when you're trying to be put in a box where you don't belong. And they don't have anything to compare with because there's no other Latino residents or there's senior Latino residents. So I think that was one of the biggest frustrations for me. And almost the biggest frustration, it sounds like it was just the the cultural loneliness that you felt. I think that was one of the challenges. I did have my best friend as one of my core residents. But when you have a very large class and you're in several hospitals, you're not like to see each other every day. So I think isolation is a problem for many Latinas mm-hmm. in medicine. And also the challenges of role models. If you you can do better if you can see somebody that has done it before you because there is examples and it's this whole sharing experiences and uh, learning from other people. I did have a few senior Latinas and rockers, but as always, I wish we had more and we're hoping to get there. Yeah. 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 And, and since our 
our White Coat Wellness podcast here is built around the concept of just overall wellness. And we touch on financial wellness. I, I guess one of the other questions I wanted to ask was just how you've kind of handled the financial learning curve that can be daunting for everyone going through medical school, residency, transitioning into practice. What's that that learning curve been like for you? And as you've gotten married to someone from either another culture and, and just continued your training? I do have to say, when you're a medical student, you are expecting the check as a resident. And then nobody tells you that 33% or more is going to be taken for other reasons. So I always say, when you're a medical student, you're in a negative balance because you're paying to work. And then I was fortunate to have a scholarship, so I I didn't have any loans. But then you have higher expectations of that first paycheck when you are a resident. And then when the first paycheck comes and it's significantly lower what you expected, then um, it's important to know that you make decisions, smart financial decisions right before the paycheck, because otherwise it would be a challenge. I think is. For me, I, my husband is great with finances. He has a degree on it. But one of the good things about being a resident is that you're so busy that you don't have time to spend the money, <laughs> even if you want yeah. to. But Amazon wasn't that big when I was a resident. So that's like six years ago. I think now it may be more challenging with Prime Day and like you can mm -hmm. order anything. So I think my recommendation to people that just become a resident July 1st is like, Chill on the Amazon. <laughs> There's a lot of things that you won't need. There's a lot of things that you won't need and a lot of things that you won't use because you are a first-year resident and you're a first-year fellow. With people that have loans, I think it's important to have a financial advisor because these are large sums of money that they're own and they're interest and they're refinanced. So I think that would be important. It is a challenge to to transition from a resident to a fellow because then you expect you're making more money again but you're just making the same money you just have more years under the belt so if you have loans i would recommend a financial advisor don't buy things on amazon that you don't need mm -hmm. and the paycheck is going to be smaller than you thought mm -hmm. And with you coming out of fellowship and and just recently transitioning into into practice at uh, at the Carborn Cancer Center, one of the things that that we often talk with with folks about is the transition stage, the the couple months between residency and when you start, when maybe you don't have any benefits, your paychecks, you know, there's a gap in paychecks. How did, how did you prepare for that, or what sort of financial considerations should people be thinking of? as they prepare for that transition into practice and go through kind of that, that desert period of, of resources and paychecks? I think it's just preparing ahead of time. We save money because we know, and it is important to take time off between your fellowship, residency, and your faculty position. This is the only time you're going to have this amount of time off. People told me I shouldn't work, but here we are doing the podcast. Yep. But I think saving is important. There is also the insurance challenge, which you do have COBRA, which we help you, but it's extremely expensive. So I think preparing ahead of time, because we all wait for this moment when you finally finish training, but there is a gap. And this mm -hmm. can be up to two months gap. So if yeah. you save ahead of time, then you can enjoy that time off and also do some travel because mm -hmm. you haven't been able to travel for a while. So I think preparing ahead of time is 
the best advice I can give anyone. Absolutely. Well, and I, you mentioned two months. Sometimes it can even be three or four months, depending both on when you start and when your first paycheck actually comes. I know, you know, some places just pay monthly. And so you end up, even though you've started, you still have to wait another month for the paycheck to show up. So definitely planning ahead is good there. I want to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the Twitter community you've started uh, with some colleagues in just a minute when we get back from this break. I'm Will Coster, and on this episode's White Coat Wisdom, I want to use my time to talk about credit cards. You know, the things we tap, swipe, and insert without even blinking an eye. Nowadays, everyone is obsessed with points. People fight over the check at dinner just to get the rewards. People open a new credit card each month because there's some flashy introductory offer. I'm here this week to tell you that no amount of miles, points, or rewards is worth carrying a revolving balance on your credit card. Now, I know there are special circumstances and there are 0% offers on some cards, but the point I'm trying to make is that credit cards are a tool that can be beneficial for things like cash flow management. They're not made for points. They can be detrimental to your financial situation if not used with caution. Don't let the points drag you into a battle to make ends meet each month. It's like the ocean. My mom always taught me to have a healthy respect for the ocean's power. I'm going to teach my children to have that same healthy respect for credit cards. Bottom line, stop focusing on the points and think about what you're buying before you tap, swipe, and insert. For this episode's White Coat Wisdom, I'm Will Coster. So I know you started the uh, Latinas in Medicine Twitter community with some friends recently, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about that and just kind of where that came about? So the first thing is the hashtag Latinas in Medicine wouldn't exist without Dr. Mora and Brianne, which is a medical student in New York City. She's a MD, PhD student. So everything started in a Friday. We have been, I, I know Dr. Mora for a while. We're both part of the National Hispanic Medical Association. And I connected with Brianne a few months before. And if I can tell you, it's a Friday. I tend to do most of my social media when I'm in the elliptical, because then I can exercise and do social media at the same time. So I'm on the elliptical on a Friday afternoon, and I send in a message. It's like, this is it. We need to create a community. I'm so tired of this thing, of being isolated, not knowing anybody, and getting people direct messages about not knowing anyone about being the only Latina resident in the entire institution or being the first Latina. So then I remember I couldn't log in in my phone. So then somebody went and opened their account quick. And then Dr. Mora registered the hashtag. So because I'm pretty sure a lot of people have similar ideas. And there's a similar group in San Diego that has a different objective that we do. And then by a matter of an hour, the group was formed. Then we have several phone calls about what our goal was and how we were going to distribute the work. And in a matter of, I would say, two days, we have 100 followers. And if you're new to social media, taking the first 100 followers takes a while. So we were very surprised. And in like a week, we have 200 followers. And we have polled the members to see what they would like this group to be. So what it is to today is thanks to all the input for all these Latinas that are like, oh, we want to do a book club. So we have our first book club two weeks ago. And then it's a virtual book book club. And then we have the mini interviews. 
where we interview Latinas that are in different parts of medicine and then they share the stories. And everything has to be shared in 280 characters. So it is great because it's precise, concise, and you can read it quickly. So we are adding more things every day and we're hoping to do some webinars uh, coming up that we can share with Latina. So it started out like a small community and now we're creating resources, thanks to other Latinas, to give them tools for training and after training. Mm-hmm. And what's been some of the feedback that you've heard? Like, what has this meant to the people that have connected with you through this community? I think for some of them, it has been great to see that first, there's other Latinas that had completed training that we didn't die during training and that we learned to be ourselves during training. So that's one of the, I would say the number one feedback is like, thank you for sharing your story. I thought I was the only one that was feeling isolated. And also sometimes people drive when they share their misery together. So the whole thing about being too Latina has been a common theme as well. So then we help Latinas how to like feel comfortable with themselves and also what to answer when you are, how can I say, presented with this phrase about being too Latina. So we have great comebacks now. And yeah, well, have- maybe maybe you should uh, form like a uh, Latina and medicine pride day and everybody wear yellow dresses on the same day around the country. <laughs> I, I think that I think we're up. I cannot say too much about this, but we're going to start a campaign. Okay. About why Latinas dress and what people expect us to dress uh, like. And we're hoping that despite having a yellow dress, that doesn't mean I'm not a physician. That's, I'm still a physician, I'm still an oncologist, and I'm still a scientist. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we're getting there. Now, what other, I I, I know you've been involved in other advocacy and leadership in medicine. Talk a little bit about your your work there. So our work in education is focused on diversity and inclusion. And I, I think diversity and inclusion go together. Diversity is important because the U.S. population is very diverse. And uh, there's several things that I'm going to use my example. So uh, Latina and a lot of Latino patients, Latin patients are told that they're not compliant. That's one of the stereotypes. But there's a lot of behind this. They can be a language barrier why they don't take their pills. They don't understand why they have to take them, especially if you have a translator or, or you have a physician that believes to speak Spanish but doesn't really. Or there is a cultural belief or they are believing in alternative medicine. So I think having diverse doctors will be able to understand these unspoken factors that um, also affect our patient's health. In addition, if you have a Latino physician and you're a Latino, there are things that our abuelitas taught us that we can understand. For example, how to find a middle point between using your own remedies, but also using uh, the standard medicine how to, to negotiate with your patients. So if you have diverse doctors that will be able to provide some of that understanding that you can know explain in the books. When you're in general medicine, you can say, oh, there are cultural differences, but there's so many cultures. Even we in the Latin community, we're, we're so different. We're clumped in this big group, but we're very different. So also the important about diversity 
we in medicine is that we help the gen, the, the younger generation see that, yes, you can be a doctor, yes, you can be faculty, yes, you can be a scientist. And the second part is inclusion. And this is something I, I make a lot of emphasis in is because diversity is inviting you to the party. Inclusion is asking you to dance. So if you are hiring diverse doctors just because you want the picture to look good, then that's also a problem. And that's called tokenism. When you hire the Latin, the African-American or the other minority groups doctor to put it in the front page of your hospital or to put it in a big sign in the pharmacy, but then that doctor is not given any opportunities or is actually being told that he or she is too Latino or Latina. So I think a lot of my work is about, yes, we need diverse doctors, but we also we need to understand that we need to give these diverse doctors opportunities to thrive. So the whole thing about going to the party and dancing, find it very Yeah, important. I think that's a, a great a great analogy that it even helps me kind of understand your work and your perspective on it. And and as you as you raise the issue of inclusion, being asked to dance, what have been some of the things that either you've worked on or that you see as being ways that the medical system, that hospitals, that institutions can can help promote inclusion or kind of remove some of those stigmas or, or the barriers? I think one of the, cha- the one of the first thing is to invite these doctors to be at the table. Some organizations are trying to make a difference or, or trying to invite these doctors to editorial boards, but we are still very behind. So I think we are learning about gender differences and how to invite more women to be part of the largest societies, larger journals. We're still lagging behind about, it's not only about gender, it's also about racial and ethnic differences. Because we cannot measure every physician with the same ruler because their opportunities have been different. Especially for minorities, they encounter a lot of challenges right before they get into medical school and we are medical school. So we cannot expect everybody to come for a private school or go to a private college. Mm-hmm. And as you, so there's, there's this, uh, this angle of diversity within the healthcare community and, and beginning to spread the word that we want more than, I think the statistics I've seen are about 4% of physicians are Latino. Maybe it's less than that or, or somewhere in that range, but but the the work of of inviting more Latinos into medicine as a as a career and giving them the comfort and the boldness to be part of that community, but then also as you were referencing the creating an environment that better serves the Latino community when they come in for well, first of all, making them feel comfortable coming in for care and treatment, right? When there's different cultural concerns or fears or confusions, and then and then creating an environment that that is effective for providing them the care they need. Is that, am I kind of understanding what, what your perspective is there? Yes. I think that's a, that's one of the most important points about diversity is that we are here to take care of patients and providing that connection with physicians is priceless. Mm -hmm. If you can trust your doctor, then you will do better. Yeah. Yeah. And so what do you see in the time that you've been, in the states and in the medical community and moving from rounding in in Seattle to residency to fellowship, is the trend improving? I think there are more efforts 
to and by more minorities into medicine. So I think we're getting to the part of diversity. I think we still have a lot of work in the part of inclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think we, as we get older, I have developed these Latinas and medicine physicians are also, we have grown and we have become stronger to this process. We're fighting together to get to that part. Because six years ago, we were first year residents. And I think the hashtag Latinas in Medicine have helped us connect to each other and also to make sure we have, we're all one voice. Mm-hmm. And I have to, it's not only in internal medicine, there's a great group of Latinas working in surgery because we need doctors of any type. So I think the efforts are better than when I was an intern, but we're still lacking the inclusion. And I think we're suffering more for tokenism now that we were suffering from a few years ago, mm-hmm. meaning that people now know that it looks good to have a minority doctor. So I think a lot of minority doctors maybe put it in the pictures now instead of six years ago. Mm-hmm. So we say we are better, but there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. And and so what would your, as we, as we kind of get ready to wrap up here, what would be your encouragement to program directors or hospital administrators or those in leadership now that, that hear you talking and say, yeah, I, I want to, I want to create a more inclusive community. What are some of the things that, that they should be doing? And maybe I'll ask a, a piggyback question of that for those that they're listening that are in the Latino community or the Hispanic community or the Asian or the black community. What encouragement would you, would you give to them uh, based on your experience? So to the administrators and the program directors, I would say that diversity drives excellence because when you have several opinions, several ways to see a problem, that problem can be solved better. In addition, we are here for our patients, and our patients are different. We come from many backgrounds. So as you have to offer a patient a surgeon for a tumor, and you have to offer a medical oncologist, you will be able to offer several types of doctors. And for all the minority students, I want to share with them that it is possible to reach your dreams. It does take work. You may find obstacles. You may find unconscious bias. We all suffer from unconscious bias. But I want them to know that they're not alone. There's a group of us that we are doing this together. And if they feel like one day is a bad day, that one day they have been discriminated, our doors and our direct message is open. We are here to listen to them. We are here to amplify their goals and amplify their accomplishments. So in summary, yes, we can do it. And it would take work, but we're getting there. Excellent. On this episode's White Coat Achievement, we're highlighting a physician who is helping promote diversity in the medical field, specifically in the demographic of black males. Dr. Dale Okorodudu, or Dr. Dale for short, is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Dallas VA Medical Center, and he is the founder of Black Men in White Coats. Dr. Dale noticed a problem. Less black men were applying and enrolling in medical school. While he was at Duke University, a study came out that showed in the year 2014, less black men applied and enrolled in medical school than in the year 1978. That's staggering. So Dr. Dale and his colleagues sat around an iPhone camera propped up on a wallet to start making videos 
to promote awareness of this issue. Out of that, Black Men and White Coast was born. They have a strong online presence and community. They've hosted youth summits, and now there's a Kickstarter to help them fund Black Men and White Coats Rise Up, a documentary film that brings awareness to the lack of black men in medicine. If you're wondering, the Kickstarter reached its goal of over $100,000 raised, and that's phenomenal. As always, if you know someone who wears a white coat and is achieving something noteworthy, please send us an email. We'd love to hear about it. But again, this episode's white coat achievement goes to Dr. Dale Akorodudu and what he's doing to change not only the perception of black men in medicine, but black men in America. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, NJ, uh, Dr. Duma, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today and just starting the conversation. I would say to those listening, if you want to continue the conversation with with NJ, uh, again, it's at Latinas in Medicine on Twitter. I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of White Coat Wellness. You can stay in touch with us or other colleagues, uh, physicians, dentists interested in in wellness and financial wellness through our White Coat Wellness Facebook group. Uh, the link is in the show notes below. You can follow me on Twitter at Shane underscore Tenny, T-E-N-N-Y. Uh, and if you've enjoyed today's conversation, would you mind giving us a shout out and a good review on Apple iTunes or Google Play? That'd be super helpful. Make sure to subscribe so you won't miss any of our future doctor stories. And if you have ideas, questions, suggestions for future topics or guests, uh, you can drop me a, an email directly, Shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you here next time. This episode of White Coat Wellness is over, but you're not alone on your journey toward financial wellness. Spa Dame Rinteni has been helping physicians and dentists with their financial planning for over 60 years, and we'd love to answer any questions that would be of help to you. Visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Once again, that's sdtplanning.com, and we'll see you on the next episode of White Coat Wellness.